Daniel 11, verse 2 is where we're beginning tonight. Daniel 11, 2. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said this, Let God be true and every man a liar. You know, the Bible that you have, that you're holding or is on your phone, is a reliable revelation. It is sure, it is true, it is unbreakable. And one of the great confirmations of God's Word is to just look back through history and see how biblical prophecy has always been 100% accurate. Not 99% accurate, not 50% accurate, but 100% accurate. And you know, the accuracy of Bible prophecy is not just some sort of parlor trick meant to impress you. Maybe you know like that one card trick that you could break out at a dinner party if you needed to kind of impress people, and that's, that's all it does. Well, that's not what Bible prophecy is about, of course. It's more than uh, just, it's not a trick at all. It, it's, it's a powerful announcement that what God has said is not just true for history, but that means it's also true for you personally. Because when God comes along and in a vision like we're going to look at tonight says, here's what's going to happen throughout the unfolding of human history. And then you page over and he says, now here's what's true for your life and how you should live, and your relationships, and those sorts of things. We can understand the reliability and the accuracy of the truth that God has put in His Word. Our text tonight is an amazing verification of the truth of the Bible. The prophecy given here is so detailed and so historically accurate that unbelieving critics must make up arguments to try to convince themselves that Daniel as a book must have been written centuries after when it claims it was written, because after all, how could anyone have known what Daniel wrote here? This, is, this passage is one of the big reasons why the book of Daniel is frequently under attack from uh, all sorts of critics and unbelieving scholars and things like that, because they look here, they see how it perfectly lines up with what happened in human history, and they say, well, obviously then the book must be lying. And so uh, it's an amazing, amazing passage. In reality, this text proves the reliability of Scripture, the faithfulness of God, and the fact that God likes to tell us what is going to come to pass. Not everything, but God likes to say, hey, here's what's going to happen in the future. He's that kind of guy. Now, you've heard from us here at Calvary countless times that over a quarter of the Bible was prophetic in nature when it was written. If you took all the verses of the Bible and mixed them all up and you pulled out four of them, one of them would be a prophecy of some sort. Not that it's still yet to be fulfilled, but prophetic when it was written. Uh, 25 or 27% of the entire Bible was prophetic in nature. Now, sometimes the prophecies in the Bible are very specific and very plain, right? For example, in Isaiah, God identifies a man named Cyrus. He identifies him by name. He says, hey, my servant Cyrus is going to show up and do the following things. In Micah, we're told that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. Very plain, very direct, very specific. And then you have other passages of prophecy that are much less direct. They're difficult. They're hotly debated. They're not altogether clear. Why is that? Why didn't the Lord just give us a list of names and dates and places and times and a timeline. Well, why do we have visions that are sort of uh, more difficult to understand? Well, I don't know the mind of God, of course. I think there are a couple of principles that we find elsewhere in the Scripture that can help or at least be parts of the answer to that question. First of all, 
God's desire is that people seek him. Remember, God is a relational being. He's not a machine. He's not mechanical. He's relational. He wants to have a real relationship with you. He's not just, you know, looking to have a sort of transactional interaction with you. He wants to have a personal relationship with people. And so his desire is that we seek him, that we desire to draw near to him and to relate to him and those sorts of things. We remember when Jesus taught the people in the gospels, we're told he often used parables. Why? So that if you really wanted to know what he was talking about and who this Jesus was and what he was about, you would have to follow up with him and ask him and commune with him and spend time with him. And when people did that, Jesus said, oh, great, now I'm, I'm, you're the ones that are going to receive the interpretation of this parable. And second, there's a principle we find in Scripture that it seems that as God accomplishes his will in human history, even in prophecy, there are some points of elasticity in how things will come to pass. Uh, We can't say, you know, which things for certainty, but here's a couple of examples that illustrate what I'm talking about. Jesus famously told the Jews that John the Baptist could have been the one to fulfill the prophecy of the man coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He said, if you would have accepted it, but you didn't, indicating that John could have been that figure. They didn't accept him. Therefore, John did not fulfill that prophecy, right? Or we think of the Israelites on the edge of the promised land there. They were told, okay, go in. It's time for you to take hold of the promised land. And what did they say? They said, eh, we don't want to. And so when they refused, the timeline of them receiving the fulfillment of that prophecy was put on hold for 40 years. And so as providence unfolds, we find that some things must happen at specific moments through specific people, Cyrus, Bethlehem. 42 months, 1,260 days. And then other things are accomplished in less specific ways. And so it follows that not all prophecy found in the Bible is going to just be a list of specific names, dates, and places. But here's a key to keeping a proper perspective on Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy must relate to real, actual events that either have taken place or will yet take place. That's the deal. You know, our text opens up here with an angel saying, now I will tell you the truth. He says, I'm going to tell you things that are going to happen. And then he goes on to give specific details which cover hundreds of years of world history, real history. When you go to world history, you find that these things actually happened the way the Bible said they were going to happen. But that isn't only true of Old Testament prophecies. And this is a, a mistake that so many people, even within the church, make. They assume that these Old Testament prophecies or prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus, well, of course, those were all literal. Those all actually happened in human history. But then they turn around and they face the other direction of those prophecies which are talking about things which are yet future to us. We talk about how there's 500 or so yet to be fulfilled prophecies. We talk about that every Sunday morning in our prophecy update. And so many times, different branches of the church or systems of theology turn around and say, literal this way, not literal that way. But it has to be true of all prophecy that these things correspond to actual events and actual occurrences. Now, why is this important? Well, this matters because when you get to the book of the Revelation, for example, you read in the very first verse that what follows is a message of, quote, things which must shortly take place. 
And Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, when you see these things happening, and Paul and Peter and Jude all talk about the coming time of the end. And yet, even within the church at large, there are so many who teach that, well, Revelation is just imaginary, it's impossible to understand, it doesn't correspond to reality, it doesn't speak about future events, it's just sort of mystical images meant to comfort you in your daily life. But look, that's not how prophecy works. I feel like Han Solo in The Force Awakens, that's not how the force works, right? That's not how prophecy works. When Herod said to the scribes, where is the Savior supposed to be born? He maybe didn't believe that the Savior was really coming and that he should submit to him. But he said, where is the Savior going to be born? They said, in Bethlehem. He said to the wise men, you should go to Bethlehem if you're looking for this guy. He didn't say, who knows what Bethlehem means? That's probably just an image in your mind of whatever it, you, know, you need for comfort today. That's... Prophecy works like we see in Daniel 11 tonight. And Daniel 11 is the prophetic equivalent of Babe Ruth striding up to the plate, pointing to the center field bleachers, and then hitting a home run to center on the very next pitch. That's what we're going to see tonight. Charles Feinberg writes this, secular history verifies every statement made in this chapter and confirms every detail of these predictions, which were made long before the events actually occurred. And so let's get into it. In the first section of our text, verses 2 through 4, we learn about the next 95 years or so of Persian history, starting with Daniel's current day and then moving forward until the empire is toppled by the Greeks. Verse 2, an angel speaking says, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece." After we read every one of these verses or set of verses, we can say, this all happened. It's going to get old, but we're going to do it. <laughs> it's quite remarkable. We don't have time to go through every element in every verse tonight. We'll get to what we can. But this all happened. What I just read, this all really happened. Three more kings came to the throne of Persia, and then came Xerxes. And Xerxes did wage fierce campaigns against Greece. It says he, he stirred up all against it. They talk about Xerxes summoning an army. Some historians put it at a million soldiers. Some historians put it as high as five million soldiers, maybe the greatest army ever assembled against Greece. And his wealth was indeed fabulous. In fact, when Alexander the Great defeated Xerxes and plundered the treasure house between, uh, behind his palace, Alexander took away between eight and nine million pounds of gold from that one treasure house. An astounding amount of wealth, just as Daniel said. Verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion, that's Alexander, and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. And so this all happened. We saw in an earlier vision, that vision of the furious goat, which charged toward the ram. Remember that? It was Alexander venting his wrath at Xerxes. In fact, they found he wrote a letter <laughs> He wrote a letter to Persia and he said, by the way, I'm really mad about how you attacked the Greek people and so I'm coming to kill all of you. And then he came and did that. He conquered Persia. 
But then it says there, notice, when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up. At the height of his power, Alexander died suddenly at the age of 32 or 33. His sons were then murdered, and his kingdom was split into four regions, north, south, east, and west. So that's our first section. It covers 95 years of history. Verses 5 through 20 are the next section. They cover the ongoing wars between two of the regions of the Greek empire, Syria in the north and Egypt in the south. Verse 5, also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. This all happened. Remember, Judea is always at the center of Bible prophecy. And so this is why it talks about the king of the north, the king of the south. North of what? South of what? Of Jerusalem. That's the, the geographic center of Bible prophecy. But it's also the geographical center of this political tug of war. What we're covering here in verses 5 through 20 are known as the Ptolemaic Seleucid Wars or the Syrian Wars of that era. And in between these two empires was the land of Judea. And they would fight over, you know, over the many, many years, over the decades. And Jerusalem and Judea would find itself as the center of this tug of war. Now, as we read these verses, they are going to constantly refer to the king of the north or the king of the south. But these aren't just two individuals. They are dynasties that cover well over a century of time. In the south, you have the Ptolemaic dynasty. And in the north, you have the Seleucid dynasty. I'm not going to go through all the names because a lot of guys have names that are almost exactly the same. Antiochus II, Antiochus III the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, Ptolemy, there's a million different Ptolemies. So if you're reading this on your own, number one, I would recommend to, you know, if you, let's say New King James is your regular study Bible, that's great. It can be helpful to use one of the contemporary, um, you know, like New Living or Contemporary English Version kind of beside that to just clear up a little bit of the language, and you can go online and just sort of type this in, and you can see timelines and all of that kind of stuff, really easy to find. Uh, so if you want to read through this at a slower pace on your own, I, it's helpful to consult a chart or a side-by-side -side list so you find those uh, online. Now, historically, we know that the first ruler of Syria, the northern kingdom, had at the start been subject to Ptolemy, the first ruler of the southern kingdom. But then he was then able to throw off Egypt and rule independently over a very large territory, just as Daniel wrote. Verse 6, and at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those, in those times. This all happened. The Egyptian princess, Bernice, okay, the daughter of the king of Egypt, she was given to the king of Syria in the north in an effort to secure peace between these two kingdoms. Now, as part of the agreement, the king of the south said to the king of the north at the time, he says, listen, I will give you my daughter. We'll solidify, you know, a union together here. But as part of this agreement, you're going to have to put away the wife and the kids that you have right now. You're going to have to divorce her and get rid of her. And so uh, the king of Syria did do that. And he said, okay, uh, I'll have Bernice as my wife. His first wife, Laodicea, he said, sorry, you're gone. 
head on over that way and put her away, right? Well, here's the thing. Shortly after this plan was set in motion, the king of Egypt, the Ptolemy at that time, he died. And now the king of Syria thought, I don't really care about keeping an alliance with Egypt anymore because that king is dead and maybe this is a chance for me to make a move here. And so uh, the king of Syria said to Bernice, "Mm, I think I'm going to take my old wife back. And so as Daniel said, both Ptolemy and his daughter did not retain their power or authority. The king of Syria gave up Bernice, took back Laodicea. Now, here's the problem. Laodicea was none too happy about how all this had shook out, right? And so she was thinking, you know, my husband's not a particularly uh, faithful or loving guy, so she poisoned him and killed him, right? And then she had Bernice and her children killed, put her son on the throne. Verse 7, but from a branch of her, Bernice's roots, one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army. Enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. He shall continue more years than the king of the north. This all happened. Bernice's brother set out to save his sister. He heard what was happening. Bernice tried to escape and get away. And her brother came with an army to try to save her. But they sent uh, assassins after Bernice And so her brother was too late. Hearing about how she and her kids had been murdered, he then avenged her by attacking and subduing much of the Syrian empire. The historian Jerome reports that Ptolemy took with him on his return to Egypt 40,000 talents of silver, a vast number of precious vessels of gold, and images to the number of 2,400, just as Daniel said he would. Verse 9. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. This all happened. The king of the north did die. He fell from his horse. And then in his place, he had two sons. And the two sons then started waging war against the Egyptian provinces. Verse 11, and the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his, the king of the south, his heart will be lifted up. And he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. This all happened. Ptolemy IV came and fought against a man from the north called Antiochus the Great. Now, Antiochus the Great from Syria, he had mustered an immense army, but Egypt was victorious over Syria. Now, rather than press his advantage of this victory, Ptolemy IV from Egypt, we're told, began to display pride and self-confidence. He gave himself over to indulgence of his every desire. He abandoned himself to a life of luxury and licentiousness, and he began to lose the allegiance of his own subjects. And eventually, his own people revolted against him. And so, just as the text says, despite his victory over tens of thousands, he did not prevail. In the meantime, 
the northern empire of Syria was rallying once more, and in 203 BC, Antiochus the Great assembled an even larger army to go and fight against Egypt. Verse 14, now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, also violent men of your people, that's he's speaking to Daniel, shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. This all happened. A coalition of nations came together to support the Syrian kingdom against the Egyptian kingdom. Even some Jews joined in the fight, preferring the rule of Antiochus to the rule of Egypt. This happened just as Daniel wrote. As part of the campaign, the Syrian forces at one point chased the Egyptian general into the city of Sidon and then laid siege against it. Ptolemy did send a choice army led by three select generals of his to rescue their trapped forces, but it was too late. The Egyptian army was forced to surrender. Now, at this point, Antiochus the Great from Syria was totally victorious. History records that no one could stand against him. He then turned his attention to the Holy Land and subjected it as well. Verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him, and then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So just as a quick pause, if you like crack open, say like the Amplified Bible, they really are helpful with like doing parentheses of all the he's and him's, he's and him's. It, it says, this is who we're talking about, this is who we're talking about. Because if you're like me, you're like, who are they talking about? I'm lost in the pronouns, right? But so that can be super helpful. But here's what happened in history. Antiochus the Great, he wanted to have control over the southern empire of Egypt. And so he made a plan. He would give his daughter, Cleopatra, to the Egyptian prince, thereby securing peace. And he needed that peace with Egypt because by now he was also at war with the Romans who were gaining strength. They had come onto the scene of history. Unfortunately for Antiochus, once married, Cleopatra didn't side with her dad, right? It says right there in verse 17, she shall not stand with him or before him, and that's what happened. She sided with her new husband, not her dad. Now, at the same time, as Antiochus the Great was fighting and conquering the islands of the Mediterranean Sea, the Romans came and defeated him, causing him to turn tail and run home, as we read there in verse 19. Once back, Antiochus the Great attempted to take treasure from one of their sacred temples there, which made the people so angry they murdered him and his guards. Verse 20. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. This happened. Antiochus, the great successor, imposed a ton of taxes. They're not exactly sure what for, either to pay off the Romans, maybe to build an army to do some fighting, but he just assessed a ton of taxes. 
He didn't die in battle, but by the hand of his own minister who poisoned him. Now, in verses 21 through 28, we have a third section. And this section zooms in on the rise and reign of one particularly wicked man, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the king of Syria in the north. And we've talked about him a little bit already because he's the little horn of Daniel 8. He's like the prototype for the Antichrist. And so we've talked about him before. We're going to talk about him more in coming weeks. But 21 through 28 are about this guy and his rule and reign. Verse 21, and in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Guess what? This all happened. Antiochus Epiphanes was not the rightful monarch. He was not heir to the throne. He schemed his way in. He tricked his way in. While the true heir to the empire was captive in Rome, he used flattery and deceit to usurp his brother, without any bloodshed. It happened just like Daniel wrote. Verse 22, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably into the uh, enter even into the richest places of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. All of this happened. Antiochus uh, pretended to be a friend of the young king of Egypt. But while he was down there glad-handing him, behind his back, he was plundering the Egyptian countryside, overtaking fortified positions. Suddenly, the most productive and fertile portions of Egypt were under his control, just as Daniel had predicted. It says right there, even into the richest places of the province, right? And so Antiochus Epiphanes was able to do what none of his forefathers were able to do, and that's conquer the kingdom of the south. And then he did reward his followers by sharing the spoils he had taken with them, but only for a time. The Romans showed up. And they came along, and they uh, had some power behind them. And there's a really great historical story where I'm going to take a minute to tell you. So the Romans show up, and they say, hey, man, we don't like what you're doing to Egypt here. We would like you to go home. And Antiochus is a schemer. He's a trickster, and he tried to buy some time or whatever. And the, the, the messenger from Rome, and he had some dudes with him who meant business, obviously, they were standing in like some dirt or some sand, right? And so the messenger from Rome went and drew a circle in the dirt around Antiochus Epiphanes. He says, you can give us an answer before you step out of the circle. So Antiochus Epiphanes says, I'll go. And he did, just as Daniel predicted. He went back. He uh, was able to uh, do all of this and devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time before Rome kicked him out. He had to head back up north. Verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. This all 
happen. You can read about it in history books. In verse 26 there, it says specifically that the king of the south would be overthrown by members of his own court, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, You can uh, look it up in secular history and find all of these things happen exactly the way that Daniel predicted or that the angel revealed to Daniel. And then verse 28, while returning to his land, speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes heading up to Syria, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So Antiochus Epiphanes had his pride bruised. He got kicked out of Egypt by Rome in a rather embarrassing way, and he's on his way back to Syria. He had the spoils of war, but uh, he had a black eye to show for it. And he decided to stop off in Jerusalem because a report had come to him saying that, hey, the Jews have heard a rumor that you were killed and they're celebrating about it. And so uh, he was in a bad mood anyway, and he was a disgusting, vile, wicked man. And so he said, oh, I'll show them what I think about that celebration. And so he went to Jerusalem, killed 80,000 men, women, and children, took 40,000 people as slaves, and plundered the city. His atrocities are recorded in the books of the Maccabees. You can uh, read about it there. Now, we're going to learn more about Antiochus Epiphanes next time, but for now, we're going to have to pause. But listen, all of this prophecy, all of these details, all of it happened just like Daniel wrote about. Not metaphorically, not imaginarily, but really. And listen, so as students of the Bible, there is no reason to then arbitrarily turn and look at prophecies of yet future events like the Revelation, like the Olivet Discourse, like Ezekiel 38 through 48, like Zechariah, and say, well, that's not really going to happen. All of the prophecies about Christ's first coming, of course, those were literal. All of the prophecies about Christ's second coming, who knows? That probably doesn't mean anything. You know, Paul would say, let God be true and every man a liar, right? And so be a student of prophecy that that is consistent in your interpretation of reading prophecy. But before we close here, one small devotional insight that I think is helpful. You know, if you read straight through the passage we just went piece by piece through, Daniel 11, 2 through 28, if you read straight through, a couple of ideas and phrases keep popping up. You see again and again that people were being, quote, stirred up, right, to be led in conquest under the king of the north, the king of the south, again and again, stirring up great armies, stirring up great multitudes to do these different things. And you see the unending pattern of death and destruction, and for what, right? For riches, wealth, riches, spoil also keep getting mentioned throughout this passage again and again and again. But as men hurry after those things in this passage, death and destruction is their only reward, right? Now, we don't live in a day and age where men get mustered for crusades like we read about here, right? But the application is still there, and it's very simple. What are you stirred up for? You know, whose banner have you rallied underneath? It's the, this phrase, being stirred up, that's a phrase that actually gets used a whole lot in Scripture in a lot of different ways. But it means to be excited about or to rouse oneself. It means to get yourself on the move towards something, right? While we're not being stirred up for the battles against Egypt, there are still many people in this world who stir themselves up to just go after wealth, to go after plunder, to go after some sort of, you know, fleshly conquest like these armies of old. 
Of course, we are reminded that God has called us to go out under His banner, a very different kind of life, a very different kind of warfare, a very different kind of mindset. We're told that He stirs us up to love and good deeds. And the Bible is full of verses like Psalm 57, 8, which tells us to stir up praise in our lives, or Isaiah 64, 7, which tells us to stir ourselves up to take hold of the Lord. And so remember, the book of Daniel from the beginning has shown us a contrast between God's way and the world's way again and again and again, especially in those earlier narrative chapters. The world's way we've seen is about wealth and power and pleasure, but also wickedness and destruction and death. Now, God's way is about life. And Daniel 11 is the same thing. I'm stirred up for something in my life. I'm living and walking under some banner in my life, some pursuit, some cause. Is it the Lord's? Is he the king leading me to his victories? I'll close with some words of Paul found in Galatians, and then we'll sing. Paul says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Amen?